0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today I'm speaking with Sylvia Ram, author of La Huerra Rodriguez, The Life and Legends of a Mexican Independence Heroine, published by the University of California Press. Sylvia is the Janes Professor of Latin American Studies Emerita at Brandeis University, Sylvia, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So your first encounter with the historical figure of La Huera was 50 years ago, you tell us in the book. Before we learn more about your subject, could you tell us about this first encounter and what you were
0: up to at that time? I first read about uh, La Huera Rodriguez when I was an undergraduate in a senior seminar. That was 50 years ago. And I was... uh, I read the wonderful travel account by Fanny Calderon de la Barca called Life in Mexico. She spent two years in Mexico, 1840 1841, and became fast friends with La Guerra Rodriguez. That was my first uh, meeting with La Guerra. And actually, that book changed my life because it is a wonderful book and it talked about women, the poor, personal relations, the things that traditional histories that I had been assigned in my history classes did not yet discuss. And in retrospect, I've spent the rest of my career studying the subjects, the place, and the time period that I was introduced to through Fanny Calderon's book. And then later, when I was a graduate student going through the bookstalls in uh, downtown Mexico City, I found another book called La Guerra Rodriguez. Uh, by Artemio de Valle which I thought was a biography, sort of a fictionalized biography, but it turns out to really be a historical novel, which I now know uh, makes up a great deal about what it says about her. But that piqued my interest because he said she was the most brilliant figure, uh, woman anyway, in Mexican history. So that's where I began. And then as a graduate student, I, I found documents about her. I published in 1976, a little book on ecclesiastical divorce in Mexico. And I included her uh, a little piece of her fascinating ecclesiastical divorce case with her first husband. So that's how I got started. And then I set it all aside. And every time I found a document about her, I'd slip it into my file cabinet. And then many years later, I sat down and wrote the book. I could not have written that book 50 years ago, in part because I was a militant social historian who did not study individuals. Uh, We didn't do biography at that time. It was very discredited. And I certainly would not have studied an aristocratic woman like Laguera Rodriguez, but times changed. And I learned how much you can get out of doing the biography of an individual life. And I also learned, a lot more about the difference between history and memory, which is one of the big topics of the book. So within a few years, a few years from now, about five years ago, I was ready to write this book that had been in the back of my mind for half a century.
1: So the results of this decades-long uh, process to be, to be ready to write this book, the result is divided into two sections. So in the first section we have an account of La Guerra's life And then we have an account of the ways that her story has been used, mythologized, changed over time. But let's start by looking at a little bit more about her life. Could you explain how this young woman of Mexico City's elite ended up a twice widowed mother of many children by the time she was 28 years old?
0: Yeah, I think in some ways she was quite representative of the women of her time. She married right before her 16th birthday. She married a man who was uh, 12 years older than she was and quite a bit. Uh, he was very jealous, very controlling. Uh, he beat her. He uh, also uh, didn't didn't have as much money as she might have expected, so that even though she grew up in a very comfortable household, she suffered quite a bit during that first marriage. Uh, at one point, he came back from one of his haciendas and he um, Fired his pistol at her. It didn't go off. So she, you know, was lucky. But she ran to her parents' house and they went to the viceroy because it was a very well connected family and um, charged him with attempted murder. He was put in jail and a month later, when he came out, he was under house arrest actually. He came out and he charged her with um, ecclesiastical divorce. He said that she had committed adultery with the people he had found her uh, speaking with when he fired his gun, and they were priests, two priests. Well, he never could prove anything. He dropped the uh, suit, and she went back to him. Now, one of the myths we have now is that she was such an independent woman, such a feminist before her time, that she would never put up with a man like that who was so abusive, and that, in fact, she's the one who initiated the divorce case. She's the one who... Uh, left him and lived as a happy divorcee. None of that is true. There was no real divorce at that time. It was just a separation authorized by the church. And as I said, she went back to him. They had another child and she was freed only because he died. (laughs) At which point she soon married again. And then her next husband died after six months. And then she spent the next 17 years on her own, raising the five children who had lived because... Uh, One of them had died in infancy, then another one died in infancy, and then um, another one died at the age of 15. So she had um, a life that was not so atypical for a woman of the time, although that divorce case was quite scandalous. But she had been raised to know how to defend herself, to defend herself in court whenever someone uh, filed a suit against her, which two of her relatives did, uh, over money. That was something that uh, the elite. Um, spent a lot of time suing each other about. But she had learned the responsibilities of a woman of her class. And she navigated this time period, raised her children very well. The three daughters made spectacular marriages with three noblemen who were very, very wealthy. Her son had a wonderful career. Um, So that's the story of the beginning of her life, except that What made her stand out is that she was unusually beautiful, unusually charming, always the life of the party according to the the descriptions that we have, uh, and unusually intelligent and clever.
1: So during this era of her widowhood, could you tell us a little bit more about some of the material and personal struggles that she faced and how she was able to um, you know, use her resilience, as you, as you describe it, to, to get by and raise her children um, with such success?
0: Well, the period of her widowhood overlapped a great deal with uh, the period of Mexican independence, and her financial troubles really came as a result of the rebels having taken the two haciendas that provided most of her income. And so she tried to do all sorts of things. She pulled in her belt, She sold some properties. She extended the mortgages she had on other properties. She actually tried her hand at business, which was a little bit unusual for a woman of her class, though not completely unheard of. So she was trying to sell uh, cigarettes uh, from the Estanco. She had bought them uh, wholesale and was trying to sell them uh, retail. She did the same with some stockings, some very fine British stockings. Um, and she also stopped paying <laughs> the, uh, the people in one of those faraway haciendas for a while. So she, she was trying to do everything she could. She also sold off jewelry. She sold off her silver plate. But she managed to keep up appearances and remained part of this elite that was very sociable. They went to the theater. They had their own uh, box in the theater her family had. Uh, They did a lot of partying. They went to each other's country houses. So it was, in some ways, a very nice life. But uh, the period of of independence hit her very hard for financial reasons, and she was also involved in the um, crisis that was uh, set off when Napoleon's troops invaded Spain and uh, took over Spain, and then in. Mexico, then called New Spain, there was a question about what should people do when the rightful king has been imprisoned and there's a French king on the Spanish throne. And the group that she was part of, Criollos, born in Mexico, uh, centered around the city council where her father was a councilman, her brother-in-law was a councilman, and many of her friends were councilmen. They wanted to set up a system of home rule. Um... Not separate from Spain, but a temporary home rule until the rightful king could return to the throne. And she seemed to have been involved in some of the intrigues involved around that. The plan was killed by a coup, uh, the first coup in Mexican history in 1808, um, but the resentments remained. And so she actually seems to have been one of the leaders of an intrigue that accused the head of the Peninsular faction that carried out the coup of trying to um, poison the Viceroy. And she was investigated. It was found that this uh, denunciation was false, that it was, according to uh, the Viceroy, this was something that was simply due to personal resentments, probably because he was the leader of the coup against the group that she favored the criollo group, and she was was banished from Mexico City in the spring of 1810 and spent two months in Querétaro. So during this period of widowhood and of political ferment, she was right in the middle of it. But she came back to Mexico City shortly thereafter, and she was very careful after that to be so discreet that we don't really have any records of what her political um, convictions were. We only have tiny little bits of information that now and then she did pay some money to the rebels, probably to protect her properties, to keep them on her good side. But we're not absolutely certain exactly what happened. So this was a traumatic period for her. Um, And it's from, from these little bits and pieces that the myth was later developed that she was a very important independence heroine, because it was said that the entry, which happened in 1809, actually happened in 18010, a year later, after the Grito de Dolores that began Mexican independence. But that was that's not true. Uh, and it was said that that money that she was paying was because she, she very much supported the rebels, which, again, uh, I don't have any evidence for. But I do have evidence that she considered them in one letter, the enemy. So that doesn't seem to be the words of an outspoken, passionate independence heroine.
1: So you say in the book that um, La Uera's many activities during the last decades of her life um, call into question some stereotypes that historians and maybe others have about what elite Mexican women's lives were like during this era. So what was keeping La Uera busy in the years prior to her death in
0: 1850? Well, this was a very uh, sociable set of Um, people. Every time a foreigner came to town, the foreigner would go around and meet all of her friends, including her. So we had some travel accounts, not just Fanny Calderons, where people talk about her. Carlos Maria de Bustamante talked about her going to... He saw her in civic ceremonies. He knew her daughter very well. One of her daughters who um, died in Brooklyn, actually, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, And you know, she was involved, she was married for a third time in, in 1825, and she was living the good life. She, a lot of family, she had, you know, she had at one point seven children and a bunch of them died, but then she had lots of grandchildren and eventually great-grandchildren that kept her busy. And we have descriptions of her going to a party in, um, on the outskirts of Mexico City and taking one of those granddaughters with her to introduce her to high society. So she was a good grandmother. But she's never been portrayed as a matriarch. She's uh, later been portrayed as a femme fatale. Uh, but she could just as e- easily have been portrayed as a matriarch with a large family involved uh, in family and social life and in raising money in 1846, raising money for the Mexican cause in the war against the United States. She also spent a lot of time going to church. She gave money to various church activities. She um, was seen at the ceremony when Iturbide's bones were uh, buried in the cathedral, etc. So she was very much a part of the daily life of the city. She lived right smack in the center of the city, a couple blocks away from the cathedral, uh, and next to the church where she would eventually be buried in 1850. It was right across the street from her. So she was right in the thick of things. But she stayed away from politics after. Uh, independence.
1: So let's move now to talk a bit about the second section of the book. Um, And we learned there that a century or so after her death, she becomes well known again, thanks in part to the work of Artemio de Valle Arispe. And then she's become more famous, it sounds like, since then in recent decades. So could you walk us through this part of her afterlife?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that she disappeared from the written record after her death in 1850. Um, for 50 years, she doesn't appear in Mexican Arts and Letters. And then she very gradually starts to reappear in 1903 with uh, Guillermo Prieto's Memorias, where he only mentions her in one paragraph, but it's an interesting paragraph. And he says that when Iturbide, that she uh, was a great friend of Iturbide's, which is certainly true, she was, he was part of her social circle. Uh, and he said that when he could be this, uh, made his triumphant entrance into Mexico City, September 27, 1821, so my book came out just in time for that commemoration, that <laughs> uh, he changed the route of the procession to go by her balcony. Uh, and then later, uh, authors would say that he not only went by her balcony, but that he stopped, took a feather from his hat, sent it up to her. And then later, It became, uh, they were lovers, and so he was stopping by the house of its lover. But it began in 1903 with that very, very small paragraph, which is probably a myth. Guillermo Prieto was only two years old when this happened, so he doesn't really know exactly what happened. But we do know from other 19th century chroniclers, and from a painting that we have of the triumphal march of Iturbide into Mexico City, that there was a huge arch that had been erected at the beginning of her street where the city council men uh, met him and gave him the keys to the city. So, in going straight to the Zocalo, the central mm-hmm. plaza, he was going to go by her balcony no matter what. So, that's the first little myth that begins in 1903. Then, her uh, great great, how many greats? Fifth grandson, Manuel Romero de Terreros. Um, published a few books where he talked about his family, and he mentioned her each time a little more uh, in writing about the glorious, noble, wealthy family that he had. And of course, he didn't air any of the dirty linen, none of the ecclesiastical divorces or the scandals of the time. Uh, and her daughter, Josefa, actually got a, an ecclesiastical divorce. So that's all played down by Romero de Terreros. He talks about his wonderful, noble wealthy, charitable uh, relatives, and he adds a whole lot more uh, myths. Um, and very gradually, little bits and pieces start to come out about La Guera, and they are pulled together by Atemio de Vallieri's spin, this wonderful novel he wrote in 1949, which is great fun to read. It's a, a really wonderful novel in which he not only takes the bits and pieces that have been appearing about her in the first half of the 20th century but he makes up a great deal. And he's the one who turns her into the great independence heroine by changing the date of the intrigue to before the Grito de Dolores to after the Grito de Dolores. He's the one who adds a whole new set of myths about all these affairs that she was supposed to have had. With Simón Bolívar, who in fact was in Mexico City for one week when he was uh, 16 years old, but there's absolutely no evidence that he even met La Güera let alone that they had an affair. With Alexander von Humboldt, We uh, historians think that Humboldt was gay, so we don't think they had an affair either. But in any case, the only historical evidence is the tiny little paragraph in Fanny Calderón de la Barca, where La Guerra says that, that when Humboldt had been in Mexico City 40 years earlier, they had been great friends and she had spent a lot of time with him, which is possible. That was not unusual at all for a woman of her time. And then he adds a third um, affair, which is supposed to be with the liberator of Mexico, Agustin de Iturbide. And he claims that it was La Guerra who even gave him the idea for the Plan de Iguala. So here we have uh, all these little bits and pieces and myths and rumors that had been spreading, being pulled together and turned into something quite different, because the first... Writings of the early 20th century still portrayed Guera as a very proper aristocratic lady. But by the time uh, Artemio de Valladispe is done with her, and he had a lot of fun writing this book, uh, she was a scandalous, sexually liberated lady who uh, lived very freely, having her affairs and also working to bring independence to Mexico. And that is a version of her life which is almost entirely invented that has captured the imagination of later writers who repeated it and then kept modifying the details and kept adding new ones until she has become something quite different, even from what she was in 1949. Because Artemio de Valle or this was one of the last books he wrote. He wrote about 40 books. Um, he was a a little ambivalent about a woman being so free and independent. So in his book, at the end of her life as an old lady in her third marriage, but her third marriage lasted 25 years. So it was, you know, middle-aged to old. He says that she uh, was tamed by her third husband. The transgressive woman for him had to be tamed. And she was brought back to a very calm life that revolved around the home and the church, which is what the life of a woman in that time period, Artemio de Valle Arispe, believed was supposed to be. Though we know that that was not the life that uh, La Guerra Rodriguez lived or most women in that, uh, of her social class in Mexico City at the end of uh, their lives. So he's the one who really gave us uh, the beginning of the huge myth which then got elaborated and elaborated and elaborated until by the bicentennial of Grito de Dolores in 2010, she is considered one of the main heroines of uh, the independence movement.
1: So you mentioned in the book, um, in the introduction actually, that one of the things this book can do for readers is to serve as a meditation on the construction of history. Um, and thinking about what you've just said, I'm really interested that a historical novel could go so far in reshaping someone's image for the public. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about this meditation on the construction of history and what were the sources that you used to create a more fact-based story about La Guerra Rodriguez?
0: Yeah, well, I should say first that Artemio de Vallarispe had done some research and he did have a few documents, which he cites and he quotes. So he gave the reader the impression that he was writing a historical biography, a true biography. The problem is that it was mostly novel, mostly fiction, and his readers thought that they were reading history. Um, But the kinds of sources I used were uh, the kinds of sources we have about a lot of people in that time period. I did not find her letters, which would have been wonderful. That I don't have. She was never tried as an insurgent, as were the other main heroines, Leona Vicario, La Corregidora, and Mariana Rodriguez, Del Toro de la Sarin. So we don't even have uh, judicial records that will tell us, you know, where she stood on the independence uh, question. But we do have... Lots of notarial records, uh, you know, birth certificates, the the and death certificates and marriage certificates. Uh, we have the ecclesiastical divorce case, which is hundreds of pages long and extremely rich in the details of daily life. We have other judicial cases when she was sued by relatives over money, inheritance. We have, um, and they're also extremely rich. We have a lawsuit where she owed money um, to the uh, merchant who had sold her the British stockings wholesale, and she never paid for them. Uh, but because she had very good connections, she was able to manipulate her connections with the important judges at the time, and she got out of paying the debt eventually. It's a very rich case, again, which is where I found letters That she wrote to this merchant, said, I can't pay you because the enemy has taken over my haciendas and I'm not getting any money from them, which is not a word she needed to use. She could have said the insurgents, the rebels, but she calls them the enemy. And she actually adds that she had tried to get the viceroy to uh, send soldiers to oust them from her hacienda. So those are not really the words of an independence heroine. And I found that in a civil case. So we have all those kinds of documents, and then we have travel documents, and we have uh, the diary of Carlos Maria de Bustamante, who mentions her and her daughters several times. So those are the kind of sources that I have for her real life. Of course, they're not everything we would like. There are plenty of gaps in the record. Gaps, that is, years when we don't know anything about her, things we would love to know that we're never going to know. Did she ever have an affair with someone who wasn't one of her three husbands? We simply can't know that. Um, Did her, was she really in love with her third husband? Well, he was 12 years older than she was. He must, yeah, so he must have really loved her to marry a woman so much older than herself. But we don't really have the answers to a lot of this. And so what Artemio de Valladisba did was fill in a lot of the gaps with his imagination. And he wanted to give Mexico a heroine to be proud of because his lifelong uh, project was to strengthen Me- Mexican nationalism. So that's why he turned her into a heroine. And of course, it was the kind of heroine he would have loved to have seen live in Mexico. Beautiful, sex, sexy, sexually available, charming, um, brilliant, uh, But that wasn't quite the woman who lived there. And what I did was trace through different time periods what was written about her. And I saw how it changed so that she went from that proper aristocratic lady to intrepid heroine, uh, nonetheless tamed by a man, to completely independent, now we're talking after the feminist movement, completely independent, sexually liberated woman who... um, uh, was was a feminist before her time, which I didn't find any evidence for either. Uh, and that's the woman who is finally being, um, was popularized in the 2010 and 2021 celebrations of uh, independence in Mexico. So for me, it shows the huge gap between memory and history, because each generation has rewritten her story according to what they would have liked to have seen in the past, According to their views of who the good guys and bad guys are in history, according to their gendered stereotypes, because she, you know, even when feminists uh, talk about her, they emphasize her sexual uh, uh, liberation. But certainly when the men write about her, it's it's all about her beauty. She's an accessory to famous men. She doesn't do things on her own, etc., So people are writing about her through their own stereotypes of the past, through her, uh, their own fantasies about the past, to create this marvelous figure who I wish had really lived in the past. And when I started my book, I didn't know how much about uh, that, uh, how much Artemio de had made up about her, but that's what I discovered. And for me, especially in all the years that I've taught, I've learned that students often believe everything they read, as do many other people. That's why we have all the fake news (laughs) and all these uh, conspiracy theories that are being um, spread around social media. So it seems it's it's a very important lesson to know that you have to really be critical of your sources. And you have to ask, who produced them? When? In what context? Why? How could this have shaped what they said? on the basis of what sources, because most of those myths don't have any sources, they have no documentary uh, support whatsoever. So in that sense, I think it's a, a, a meditation on the construction of history, and how we have to be really careful to try to overcome our own stereotypes, our own biases, when we write history, and when we read history, otherwise we're going to just see what we want to see.
1: That's a powerful note to end with. We've been speaking with Sylvia Aram about her book, La Huera Rodriguez, The Life and Legends of a Mexican Independence Heroine. Sylvia, thanks for this fascinating conversation.
0: My pleasure.